So we're turning a corner this morning. We're going from chapter 9 to chapter 10 in John's Gospel. Uh, it's commonly known as the Good Shepherd passage. And so we're looking at verses 1 through 10 to begin with this morning. And next week, Lord willing, we'll move on to verse 11 and following as we look at the Good Shepherd. And this morning in this text, I think you'll see that what emerges there is the issue of Jesus Christ as the door. He says, I am the door of the sheep. And so exactly what does that mean? And what is the significance as it relates to being a shepherd of sheep? What is the door? What is this imagery? What is the symbolism? And why is that important to us? And so we'll begin by reading chapter 10, verse 1 through 10. Truly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these reassuring words. Those who assemble before you, Lord, with ears to hear your voice, coming from your word, O Lord, may it be heard clearly this morning. As we look into this text, this inspired, authoritative word, this eternal word, a word that does not change because it is the voice of our God. So you are speaking to us here this morning. And by extension, those who look online here this morning and those who will listen online in the future. All of us need to have ears to hear. And the deafness is widespread today. We need people with ears to hear from their God so that they might be able to sort through and build the discernment to be able to recognize the voice not only of the true shepherd, the good shepherd, but that they would have the discernment necessary to recognize the false voices, the false prophets who only came to steal, kill, and destroy. So Lord, we thank you for this text. Help us now in our understanding that you would be glorified in all of these things is our ardent prayer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So of all the monikers that Jesus has, or names, or titles, nicknames, whatever you want to call it, he has a lot of different titles that he goes by. The Good Shepherd has to be one of the most winsome. It has to be one of the most favored. It's the most intimate. It's the most possessive. It, we conjure up ideas not only loving intimate possession, but also of, of strong always aware protection. We see images of, of leading and so on. We, we love the good shepherd, don't we? we? We love this figure of speech. And mind you, this we talked about what parables are in the first hour, and this is not a parable. This is kind of different. As was said in the text itself, if you recall, as we just read it, it's a figure of speech. So this is this is not a parable. This is, he's using a very, very common occupation back in first century uh, Israel. The, the shepherds were ubiquitous. They were everywhere. The sheep were everywhere. You could hear them. The, the temple, you know, for sacrifices was slaughtering many, so there was a lot of money. And this was a huge industry, just being a shepherd and having flocks. They would keep them in what are called folds, uh, shepherd a sheep fold, 
and the sheepfold had a gate on it, and the uh, gatekeeper would uh, lie across that, that door through the night as the shepherd was able to sleep. And when the shepherd would come in the morning, the gatekeeper, recognizing who that shepherd really is, would only let him in. That's to prevent the thieves and the robbers from stealing sheep. And there was more than one flock in there, typically. So these sheepfolds were rather big. They were huge. They'd often carve into the limestone so they'd have a little shelter to get out of the weather while they slept during the night. They would build stone fences all the way around. So these things could be several acres big. They were big. And the shepherd, when he went in in the morning, the gatekeeper saw the shepherd, knows the shepherd, who he is, would let him in. And the shepherd would call out to those sheep that belonged to him. And those sheep would respond. He had particular, unique sounding names for each one. Some of them aren't even actually what we would consider a name. They're just sounds he would make. But that sheep, that one sheep, would come running out to the shepherd, one at a time. And they would pull out just what belonged to them. It would all be their own flock. The rest would stay in there. It's really quite amazing. So we're going to see that these, the, the thieves and the robbers who come in to steal would have to do that during the night. That's why you had to have a gatekeeper there during the night to listen for them. They would have to, since he's minding, minding, the, minding the gate, they would have to sneak in over the wall somewhere. And often they would be concerned that the sheep might make noise while they were trying to steal it, so they would often slit its throat and then carry it out because all they wanted was the meat and the wool. So there's a lot of, lot of imagery here that would have made total sense uh, to them in their day because, it, like I said, that there were so many shepherds, there were so many sheep, so many flocks walking down the streets, following their shepherd and so on. But it sounds like this is a whole new day or a whole new crowd. No, this isn't. This is seamless. We put in the chapter breaks. He's still talking to the same people that he was talking to at the end of chapter 9. Same group, that, the blind man, right? So he heals the blind man. You remember that. It was a wonderful depiction of what true conversion is because he understood his spiritual blindness. He was able to believe in Christ and in believing he's given spiritual sight. And Jesus saying to the Pharisees, oh, we, you think that you see, so your guilt remains. You actually don't see things spiritually. You are spiritually blind. And you remember that. Well, this is how that chapter finishes, 9. So this is the same crowd. He's just starting with truly, truly. Well, that, that's his attention getter. That's like, I'm about to say something very, very important and absolutely perfectly true. You should listen to this. And so it was important. And it should be. So there's no scene break. This goes straight on into what we're looking at now. This was a common occupation, as I said. And if you look at it, even biblically, there were shepherds throughout the Old Testament, the patriarchs themselves, all three of them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were all shepherds. So was Moses, remember? So was David, remember? So this is probably, we could maybe say, arguably, the most common occupation there was. Again, because when it comes to uh, sacrificing sheep for the atonement, they were slaughtering them by the thousands. They needed a lot of them. So there's money to be made. There's a good living to be made. But this, using this particular moniker, or this particular title, or, or having this sort of figure of speech in mind is all through the Old Testament as well when it's referring to God as a Savior. I want to show that to you just from a few selections from the book of Psalms, for instance. Psalm 77, 78, 79, and 80. Four Psalms right in a row give this type of imagery, this, this, this type of language. In Psalm 77, verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Or Psalm 78, the next Psalm, 51 and 53, he struck down every firstborn in Egypt, talking about God, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep. And you'll also see the characteristics of a shepherd too as we read along, guiding them in the wilderness like a flock. That's what he does. That's what he still does, taking you and I 
out of the wilderness and into a safe place. And so on. This is what a, a shepherd does. It's his main business. Verse 53 of Psalm 78, he led them in safety. Another important role of the shepherd. He keeps the flock safe. If he, he keeps an eye out, he has his rod and he has his staff along with him and he'll use that. He, that's his main instrument of his job. He uses it all the time to either get the uh, sheep out from being stuck somewhere, or uh, if he has to use it against a wolf or some other predator, he's always on the lookout. He keeps them safe. He leads them and guides them. And, and as we go through this, you'll see this sort of imagery so that you'll know without a doubt what characterizes a real shepherd because that's what he was. Psalm 79, the next Psalm, verse 13. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, We'll give thanks to you forever from generation to generation. We will count your praise. Well, we can understand why when we start to recognize what God is doing as our shepherd. And then Psalm 80, verse 1 to 3. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. So now he's literally called the, o, the shepherd of Israel. You will lead Joseph like a flock. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us. The shepherd is one who saves, someone who restores. That's who he is as a shepherd. That's what he does. This would have been a familiar concept. And so that's why these concepts are used so that you can go, oh, I see what he is. I, I can recognize. I was praying for the children a moment ago that they would see something of Christ in the, in the lessons that they're learning, in the, in the, in the uh, faith principles that their families are raising them in. They'll recognize him by not only their talking about these kinds of things, what a shepherd looks like, but by that role being imbibed in them, by them imitating him. That's what disciples do. They imitate their teacher. That's what a disciple means. They're imitating him. So they're seeing what a shepherd, we, he's going to provide for us. He's going to protect us. He's going to lead us. He's going to watch out for us. All of those wonderful, wonderful characteristics. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Psalm 95, verse 7, For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. We sing a song based on that verse, don't we? And the sheep of his hand. The sheep that are in his hand. That's to show the disparity in terms of size. And it's still, since it's immeasurable, that's as far as they can go. Is all of his sheep fit in just his palm of his hand? And we feel safe there. We, we feel like we're, he's mindful of us there. He's, it, we're within eye shot, within earshot of him all the time. That's a shepherd. That's your God. That's your Savior. It says it pretty clearly in Psalm 100, verse 3 and 4. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates. See, so here's the mention of the gate again by the psalmist. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Now we know why. Because he's the, sa he's the shepherd who saves us, saves us from harm, leads us out of the wilderness of the world, calls us and we hear his voice, and he draws us and we follow him with love and with thanksgiving in our hearts. That's, that's biblical. That's the imagery there. So verse 1, let's work through this. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. He also says in verse 7, mention of the door again, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 9, he says straight out, I am the door. So this is a, another of his I am statements. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
This is the next I am statement from those seven I am statements of the book of John. This is the ego am I. This is the name that God Almighty, Almighty God had given Moses on the mountain. I am the door. So when he says that, this isn't just coming from another person. This is coming from no less than God. That's a statement. That's a declaration of deity. And he repeats it. He repeats it. That's why that's the title of this message this morning, because it's, I was struck by, he repeats this three times in just these 10 verses. So it's soul possession. The ideas that we are conjured up in our mind with this idea of the shepherd is uh, uh, possession by divinity, divine authority. He has divine authority to be able to say, I am, and to be able to claim the sheep as his own. Those possessives are used all through the scripture. You are mine, and we'll be looking at those as we go along. This is exclusive ownership. This is, this is his privilege alone. Exodus 19.5 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. I love that term. That's a term of intimacy. The theological doctrine would be foreknowledge. Foreknowledge has to do with before anything was ever made, he knew you in the most intimate, most loving sense. He knew when you would be born, he appointed that day. He knew when you would be born again, he appointed that day. That's what this is. This is possession. You will hear his voice. You will recognize who it is that speaks, and you will respond. You will follow. There's a, just a number of powerful sound doctrines in this passage. In this 10 verses, talking about the shepherd. And I'll show you that as we're going along. We're going to see a, a number of things. We saw what was, we recognized as true conversion with the blind man. Remember that? Well, now we're going to see a number of other things as they emerge. So to Jer Jerusalem, he said in Ezekiel 16, verse 8, second half, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. This is wedding language. This is marital concepts. We've entered into a covenant with him. He's made his promises to us as the bride of Christ. He's given us promises that will never be shirked. A thief and a robber comes to steal and to destroy. So there's... There's warnings about this particular category of false shepherds. There's warnings uh, against the false shepherd. God gives stern warnings. I don't want to take the time to read the whole thing, but you can make a note of Ezekiel 34, 1 to 24. There's 24 verses where he is just giving strong warnings to those who are just taking advantage, fleecing the flock, that sort of a concept, who don't really care about the sheep. They're just taking things from them. So in Jeremiah 28, verse 15, no, actually, I want you to look at uh, Zechariah 11, 17. You don't have to turn there. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. That's who these worthless, false professors are. They abandon the flock. It doesn't take anything to do because they don't care about the flock. They just leave. They walk away. If they were either discovered or they didn't get what they weren't going to get what they wanted, I have no use for this place. There's no affection there. There's no love. He warns against this with the strongest of warnings. How about Jeremiah 23, 21 to 22? I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. They're preaching. They're teaching the word of God. I didn't call them. They're not mine. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. But they didn't. A lot of people proclaiming the word of God. 
lot of people teaching and preaching and, saying, and, and guiding people with counsel or whatever, saying, thus saith the Lord. And they have not been called of God to do that. They are not speaking from his word. There's something selfish in their hearts, and God is warning those people. Because his sheep don't, the sheep, whether you're his sheep or not, you're not going to know the difference. They can be very clever, very wise, seem very biblical. So that's why God does business with them. Jeremiah 28, verse 15, and Jeremiah the prophet said to the prophet Hananiah, listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. You have made this people trust in a lie. That's what you've done, and you'll answer to him for that. So now in the New Testament, Jesus warning himself. Verse 15 of chapter 7 of Matthew, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They have another whole agenda in mind. You don't see it. They, they know the landscape. They know the vocabulary. They know how to speak this, this, the whole uh, vernacular of Christianity. They come in sheep's clothing. This doesn't mean, as some of the pictures depicted, where it's a wolf that's wearing like, this is, this is they aren't in and among the sheep. They're wearing the clothing that a shepherd would. A shepherd made his clothes out of wool. So he's wearing sheep's clothes. They're false shepherds. They claim to lead. They claim to know. And they're leading people astray. So they're not just out there among the sheep. They might be, but that's what actually is, is meant there. 1 John 4, 1 tells us why this is important. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but what? Test the spirits, that's right. MacArthur always says the church isn't perishing because of liberal theology. The church is perishing for what? Lack of discernment. My people perish for lack of knowledge. That's why we focus on teaching, preaching, counseling, fellowshipping the word as much as possible so that you will hear. You know, he said in our passage, you will hear and you will know. That's not, that's not, my shepherd saying that. I, something's wrong with it. But you won't have that if you don't have discernment, if you're not in the word and know it well. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many, many false prophets have gone out into the world. And this is back then. This is 2,000 years ago. Many have gone out. How many are out now? A lot. A lot. You have to, the only way I can verify the verity of any claim or any statement that somebody makes that has to do with somebody's life or their faith or anything is to measure it where? Over against Scripture. We have to have that standard, a standard that transcends something we all share in common. And what is that? We're fallen people. Even though we're saved, we're still fallen. We have to have something that rises above, that never changes. It'll always remain the same. Something that is authoritative. Something that comes from God himself. Something that's theopanoustos, that it's God-breathed. It's the inspiration. Actually, the expiration is a better word than saying the word of God is inspired. It is expired. He speaks out his word here. We get to know this word so that we can recognize who the shepherd is and so that we can recognize when the false teachers are speaking. It's the only way to do it. It's the only way, way to know. Verse 2, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd, is the shepherd of the sheep. So I spent a good bit of time, given that this is actually the topic, I am the door, on what the door is. Because he's the shepherd, but he's also the door. How does that work? Well, if John 14, verse 6 came to mind, that's where my mind went to as I was working through this. I am what? The way. I am the way, the truth, and life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. He's the door. Enter by the narrow gate. He's actually the door. You'll see that, hopefully, if I've, if I've done my job here. It's actually, 
It's faith in Jesus. It's, it's the very means by which a person is saved. That's the door. But, but it's him, right? Because we're saved in Christ. So the door is faith. It's belief. You can't enter in without it, right? Faith and belief in whom? In Jesus. So again, the door is him. The shepherd is him, all right? Because our, the entirety of our salvation experience is through the way, the truth, and the life, through the narrow gate, all of these things that he's using uh, physical things on earth to help us understand, but they're describing him. They're describing who he is. So we're saved, in other words, if you think of Ephesians chapter 2, right? 8, we're saved by grace, what's the next two words? Through faith. Through faith. In whom? Jesus Christ. Through Christ. In Christ. Of Christ. Following Christ. He's in front. He's behind. He's around. He's in and through us. It's really tough for us to wrap our minds around something like that. Colossians 4 and verse 3, this holds the sovereign perspective, and after that I'll give you the human responsibility. They, they're both true. They work in tandem together, right? So listen to the sovereignty of God here in Paul's prayer. Pray also for us that God may, what? Open to us a door for what? For the word. He has to do that. God has to do that. So pray for that. Pray that God would open the heart of those people that you love that don't know Christ. Pray for them, just like Lydia, right? God opened her heart so she could receive the teaching of Paul. He has to do that because we're spiritually stillborn. We're all born spiritually dead and blind. So he has to, he has to regenerate us. We saw that last week with the man born blind. Now he's moving on with some, equally profound, if not more in number, powerful theological concepts here. And we have to really put our thinking cap on here this morning because there's, there's so much here. There's so much here. Pray for us that God would open to us a door for the word. That's what has to happen. To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Now, here's human responsibility juxtaposed together with God's sovereignty. Both are true. We, and I've just chose Revelation 3 and verse 20. This is the church at Laodicea. This was an actual letter that he wrote to these churches that were written by John and sent out to be taken by John as the postal carrier to this mail route that's in uh, Asia Minor. So all of these churches that he names there in Revelation 2 and 3 are on that same mail route, if you will. So Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at what? At the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, there it is. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. So he's not talking about, oh, we, we, we pray that God would... Um, that Jesus is just knocking on the door of their heart. That's not what's being said here. He's, he's writing to an actual church, a church that didn't have any believers in it. So he says, I'm at the door of your church knocking. Is there anybody in there? See, he's not going to have our faith for us. You have to understand the juxtaposition there. Those two things are both true, that God has to open things up, but then we have to respond, just like we saw with the blind man. And that's what we see here. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. So the whole grief of the Lord here is in 40 years. It's only been about 40, 40 years since this church was planted in, in a scant 40 years already. It's filled with unbelievers. It's like I'm standing at the door here and I'm knocking. If anyone hears my voice, watch what we do with that. Watch what happens from our text with that, uh, that concept, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door. Revelation 3 to the uh, Philadelphia, the church at Philadelphia. 
Revelation 3, 7 to 8, and the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who what? Opens, and no one will shut. If he opens, nobody's going to close it. You don't have to worry about that. If it gets shut, guess what? He never really opened it. People make a lot of statements about, oh, I'm a Christian. And then they don't live in a way that makes it clear that they're following Christ. Who shuts and no one opens. And we can keep praying and we should, but if he's shut that door and given that person over, they're lost. They're lost forever. We don't give up, though, because we don't know. In the last seconds of their life, he might open it up, right? So, I know your works. He goes on to say, Behold, I have set before you, what? An open door. It's open, brother. You just have to respond by saying, I recognize that voice. I'm hearing from him. I need him. I'm a great sinner in need of an even greater savior. I have set before you that open door which no one is able to shut. If they belong to him, he will open and nobody, nobody can shut it. So you don't have to worry about, whoa, they're hanging around with so-and-so now. Ah, they're going to... You're thinking like a human again. <laughs> yeah, no, God's got enough power to keep them if they belong to him. This issue of possession, it's a powerful one. This, this issue of foreknowledge is what we're going to see here in a minute. That is that even before all time, he loved us. He wrote our names in the book of life. This is, this is all about him. Verse 3, to, to him... To the shepherd, that is. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. It's a beautiful picture of a shepherd. He calls out, and as I said, there's, there could be a blending of a number of flocks in that sheepfold, and just his sheep respond. The sheepfold is the world and spiritual blindness, and spiritual deafness. If they're his, they will hear him, and they will find their way out. They won't stop until they get out and get close to the shepherd. Isn't that glorious? It's just absolutely beautiful. That's how he is with you and I. He calls them by name and leads them out. So the gatekeeper, as I mentioned, is, is a hired a hired under shepherd who works for the shepherd of the flock and so that he can get some sleep. And during the night, he watches. As I mentioned to you, he guards the flock by night. And then in the morning when the shepherd comes to the flock, uh, he recognizes who's the legitimate shepherd and he lets them in. So the sheep hear his voice that's what theologians refer to as the effectual calling. See, the call to be saved, the call for people to repent and come to Christ and he will give you forgiveness for your sins, it goes out to who? Everyone. everyone. That's, that's what they refer to as the general calling. It goes out to everyone. If anyone will hear me, I will not turn them away and all the rest of that wonderful language that says, no, that call goes out to everybody. But there are going to be those that he knows by name and has before he even created the world that will respond. We don't know when or where in their life, but they'll hear his voice and they'll respond. So that's the effectual calling. So he has unique names for them. It's interesting that in Revelation it says that when we get there, he's going to give us a white stone Remember the first time I read that as a brand new believer, I was so grateful for having my life saved that I read that he gives each a white stone that has a name on it for us that no one else will know. Why? You got to understand this knowledge. 
this, this epignosis, this intimate knowledge. This is the intimacy that a husband and wife would have, the love and the closeness, how well they know each other and, and, and all of that. That's why I love that expression we have around here. Love seeks to, to know. That's how we love. You could also shorten it on the other side of it to say, love knows. He knows us. He knows everything. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he calls us. And he leads them out, it says. Shepherd leads them out of the world and their spiritual blindness by his voice. We're blind. We're spiritually dead. He has to bring that heart to life. We talked about regeneration last week. Well, now it's the effectual, responding to the effectual call. Now the heart's alive. Now we can recognize who he is by him revealing himself in the only place he's doing that through the word of God. This is him. I'd recognize him anywhere. He's in the pages of scripture. That's where he comes. It's not mystical. It's not, it may be mysterious, but it's not mystical. It isn't a strange thing. No, this is where he speaks to us. And so we read John, you remember John chapter 6 when we went through it. We read in John 6, 37, Jesus saying, all that the Father, what? Gives me will come to me. You see that? All that the Father gives me will come to me. This is four chapters ago. Now we get a greater appreciation of it. And whoever comes to me, I love that, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You don't have to, you, you can rest in that. That's an indicative. That's a promise. That's a straight up covenant that he's made. He's not going to break it. If they belong to me, I will get them there. That's what a shepherd does, right? Takes them out of the fold in the morning, gets them fed, protects them, loves them. I love that, that scene, that interlude in the morning, the early morning light when the shepherd first shows up, gatekeeper recognizes him. He starts calling out the sheep by name. They all have unique names. And before he lets them out, he runs his fingers through their wool to see if there's any parasites or injuries because sheep are a little dumb. I know. It's embarrassing that that's what he considers us. But listen, the love's there. The love's there. It's not going anywhere. And he does. He runs oh, through their nasty wool. They had lanolin. They had this oil in their wool so it would get nasty. Dirt would stick to it. Burrs, all that kind of stuff. They would just, and they were so dumb, and they would injure themselves on sharp rock. They would fight with each other like they got anything to fight with, you know? So... He who comes to me, I will never cast out. And then a few verses later in John 6, John 6, 44, and there, there again, no one, he says, no one can come to me unless what? The Father who sent me draws him. How does he draw him? Now you know his voice. He has your name. He's appointed your birth. He's appointed your rebirth. He's appointed your death. He knows everything about you. And he loves you. And he's at work in you. You recognize his voice. His voice is so powerful, it's transformational. Because he's in this reclamation project. He's bringing back what belongs to him. We're back to possession again. This is mine. You are mine. And I'm in your heart. And you're going to hear my voice. And it will change you. If it doesn't, are you really his? It's a question we should all ask. Examine yourself, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, right? To test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. It's the most important question a human being could ever consider, and we should consider it. He says in verse 16, when we get there, this shepherd Messiah leading Jews out of Judaism, he also says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Who are they? The Gentiles. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. That's us. So where we talked about regeneration and true conversion last week, here we're seeing divine election, those that God had, had purposed from before time began to uh, be the recipients of his love. And we're seeing foreknowledge. We're seeing the effectual calling 
I mean, you didn't know you were coming here for a theology lesson, did you? You didn't know you walked into seminary, did you? All I did was try to prepare 10 verses to preach. It's all here. It's all here. Foreknowledge. Verse 4, when he has brought out all his own. I'm going to keep saying, I love that language. All his own. He goes before them and the sheep follow him and they know his voice. They don't resent his voice. They don't look at it like a, a, a book of rules of do's and don'ts, laws and you know, punishments and all of that. They recognize his voice and they, and they follow. As Josh, as the Lord had prompted Josh to open us up with, you know, that we're doers of the word. Why? Because it's him. It's him, I tell you. He's speaking to you. How could you not respond? The only way I know that I for sure belong to him is how I respond to his word. So if you have people that hear his word and like shine it on and walk off, what do you make of that? I don't know. I'm not God. But all I know is for myself, it's whether or not I respond to his word. Period. Period. So we're looking here at foreknowledge and election. He calls his own sheep by name. This is a possession. They belong to him. He wrote their name in the Lamb's book of life before the world was even made. Listen to this. So I pulled some uh, verses out of the Old Testament that has this same sort of language. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Wow. Exodus 33, 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know, your, I know you by name. Or Isaiah 45, verse 4, For the sake of my ser servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you. Try telling a mom that that baby doesn't belong to her. I named that baby. Still trying to figure out why it's Matthew, but <laughs> just kidding. Getting myself in trouble again. I named this baby. Did Josh, Josh have anything to do with it? The naming? The naming. <laughs> no, I know the rest of it. <laughs> I mean, you agreed on a name. As a husband and wife, a one flesh union, that's the product of their love for consummating their love right there in, their, in her arms. And they gave him a name. Can you imagine somebody, I, you don't belong to, I named him. He's mine, they could say. It, it's absurd to suggest otherwise. We were there from day one when we found out that, that, that he was conceived and, and, and being gestated and when he was born. And Are you kidding me? It's even more ridiculous here because God's known you a long time, a lot longer than nine months. And he knows you by name. He gave you that name. I name you. But he goes on to say in Isaiah 45, 4, this is the last part of that verse, sadly, though you do not know me. This is how well I know you. I named you. When? Like a long time ago. But you don't know me. This is Jesus in these discourses. You recognize it as we've been going through it? It's like I'm speaking to my people. I'm speaking to you. You belong to me. I'm redeeming you. And you don't know me. No, they not only don't know him, they're getting more and more filled with contempt and murders now in their heart. They want to kill him. Wow. Isaiah 49, 1, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. Wow. From the body of my mother, he named my name. That's intimacy, folks. No mistaking it. So he uses the expression, he goes before them. You know, the interesting thing is, when we were over in Israel, 
I took a picture, and I think it was your mother made a, a watercolor painting out of it. I saw a, um, a Palestinian shepherd with his robe, and he had his shepherd's crook, his, his rod, his staff with him, and he's walking along, and the sheep are following. Just a beautiful moment to be able to take that picture. But the interesting difference between the eastern <coughs> shepherds and the western shepherds is the eastern shepherds lead and the sheep willingly follow. Western shepherds drive their flocks, usually with healers, dogs that are snapping and leading from the side and behind. They're doing this. And they're through fear. There's some metaphors that could be really worked there, aren't there? Yeah, a whole lot. He just walks along. He takes his time. I didn't even see him turn around. They're just following him. You know, I looked at some images, too, online. You can, you can just Google search, you know, uh, sheep following the shepherd or whatever. There's just a plethora of, of, of pictures of shepherds walking along a country road, and there's like hundreds of sheep. They go back like a half mile, and every one of them are following them. We found one picture, though. I said, look at this one, Barbara. All of them are following, all the hundreds, except one. He's... he's, he's He's off in the bushes over here. And I, I look at that guy. She goes, that's you. <laughs> Guilty. Guilty. <laughs> so he's calling them with his voice and bidding them to follow him. The effectual call that's going to be effective every time because they belong to him. They know his voice. They respond. Hebrews 12, second half of verse 1 and first half of verse 2, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And I, I, I fell in love with that term years ago, the founder, yeah, archagos. You could also say archagon. I love that name for him. That's what he is. He comes and we look to him. See, that's the key. You have to look to him. That takes a deliberate choice of yours every day, right? What happens when you just don't do that? You're that sheep. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. He, he, he takes and he leads in all things. He's... The shepherd is the one who sets the example. They follow him along. Isaiah 55, 4, Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. This is, this is the Messiah. This is him. He's a commander. He shows up in Joshua 5, doesn't he? Right? With his sword drawn. Joshua's like, are you with us or with our enemies? He says, No. Okay, <laughs> no, but I am the commander of the Lord's army. It was him. There to do business is conquest time. Let's get it done. I'm not on your side or their side. I'm on my side. I love that verse. It's awesome. So he's a commander. He's a warrior. As a matter of fact, this, you know, uh, meek and gentle, mild Jesus that people imagine the first century, he's not coming back that way. He's coming back with his sword drawn. Hmm? Yeah, right, which is his word. A sword comes out of his mouth, because I remember thinking, what does that mean? Well, it's his word. His word cuts. It separates the true from the false, the good from the bad. It's transformational. It's piercing. All of those images. Deuteronomy 1, 33, or 30 to 33 the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you. Isn't that wonderful? Just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you. How about that? You, you sprain a leg. You get, you get a broken leg. You, you're having trouble following him. No problem. He'll pick you up. And you've seen those pictures where when a leg does get broken on a sheep or he gets injured somehow. That shepherd puts him up 
on behind his neck and his legs coming down here and he carries him. That's him. That's Jesus. That's what he does. God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. And they were so grateful as they went through the wilderness, weren't they? Always thanking God. I've told you once, I've told you before, we're rascals. They were complaining the whole way, weren't they? Verse 32, yet in spite of this word, yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you. There it says it again. That's leadership. In the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents. In fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. Micah 2, verse 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. How about that? He makes the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the narrow gate. He makes the breach. He'll make an opening for you. That's the open door. He goes before you. They break through and pass the gate going through it, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. We have also here irresistible grace. This is what I've been talking about. The sheep follow him. They're not going to ever not follow him. Even if they stray for a while off some besetting sin, if they belong to him, he's going to bring them back. And it may take great pains to do that. Not his pain. Ours. <laughs> right? If he's got to do something big to get our attention, he's going to do it. He had to do something big for me. I was particularly dense. Barbara's saying, what do you mean, were? <laughs> the irresistible grace, it's that Christ in us engenders love, the most powerful, powerful love possible. The sheep follow him because they love him. So following him, as I've said a number of times, is following his word, what he's saying, right? And we do that because we love him. Because we love him, we're deliberately, consistently quiet before him to hear what he's saying to us. He'll correct us when we need correcting here. He will encourage us when we need encouragement. He will comfort us when we need comfort. He's speaking to you in real time. He's doing it now through his word and his spirit. Those that belong to him. That's irresistible grace. Yeah, we've, if you've noticed, we've plucked a couple of the petals off of the <laughs> Calvin tulip. Yeah, this is irresistible grace. Yeah. He calls the sheep out of the fold, which is, as I said, uh, the world and spiritual blindness. Then with that effectual calling, we recognize his voice out of regeneration and we follow him, conversion, repentance. This is all true salvation. He's given us a, 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 book, a book's worth of theology in these 10 verses. Only the word of God can do that. It's just amazing. They followed him. I was intrigued by that expression as I was reading through years ago, reading through as he called out to the different disciples. Remember, he would come, and what would he say? Two words. Follow me. You know, right? A Peter and his family, they're, they're, they're fishermen. That's where he found them, and he said, follow me. And what'd they do? You know what? Later, we're, we're mending the nets right now. No, we're about to go out and catch fish. They got up and they followed him. That's the concept. They're going to follow him. Remember what else he said to them? You didn't choose me. I chose you. 
I chose you. He wrote your name in the book of life long ago. You belong to me. All I should have to say is, follow me, and you will. You'll follow me. The Greek term is akalutheo. Akalutheo, they followed him, is what it means. They followed him. So it's to, to follow one who precedes. These are just various definitions of that Greek term. In union with, these are all important. To walk the same road, Wiest says... Quote, it implies fellowship, joint participation, side by side, walking with another, to cleave steadfastly to the one, conform wholly to his example in living and, if need be, in dying. End quote. This is powerful. The word, as another writes, conveys the idea of following as a disciple who is committed to imitating the one he follows. End quote. That's the idea. Verse 5, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. A stranger they will not follow. Once we seek, he seeks us, we seek him, we find him, we follow him. Another voice isn't going to interfere with that. If it does, it's a very foreign thing to us, and we just want to get rid of it. We want to get away from it. Sometimes if you listen to some of the false teaching that is just ubiquitous on television. Uh, you're going to be led astray. It's very deceptive. It's very attractive to fallen people. Verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So this is not a parable, as I mentioned before. This is just simply... A parable is, is, is a story, a fictitious story that conveys some moral principle to it. He told a lot of parables. This is different. This is, as I said earlier, it's a word picture. It's just based on an occupation that actually was extant at the time that he was saying these things and they were being written. Verse 7, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He himself is the way out of the world. He himself. Verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Not the true sheep. And then he says it again in verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So now we're seeing salvation. He will be saved. He will be saved. There's no question about it. And not only that, he will go in and out and find pasture. He'll be fed because he will hear me now. So he'll be fed through my word. A couple more passages and we'll wrap this up and get ready for communion. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. It made me think of Romans 8, verse 35 and 37 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 10. The thief comes in only to steal and to kill and destroy. They tear things apart. They don't build things up. They pull them apart. That's what they do to the sheep that they steal. Those who were stealing sheep back then, they just wanted to gut them. They wanted to take what they wanted from it and leave the carcass there. That's who they were. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's him. Not just give you life, which would have been a grand enough thing to have happen, but also to have it abundantly. A life that's actual, actually able to be enjoyed, well-satisfied, 
fully contented. Imagine that. You find those things in Him. The closing benediction for the sermon this morning is Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for revealing these things to us. We thank you that you reveal them to children. And unless we come to you as children, we may never see you. We have a tendency of overthinking things. That's for sure. Help us, Lord, to simply receive you by a simple act of faith, saying, Lord, I believe. For all those who may not or suspect here this morning that they don't know you, may they make things right with you now by coming to you, by saying, Lord, I heard your voice this morning. Come and save me, for I am a sinner. As we get ready for communion, Lord, I pray that you bless this time, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.